Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. It's been a hot minute since we've recorded anything, but we're back, aren't we, Rick? We are. We are. Where does time go? I don't know. The holidays kind of kicked my butt, really. <laughs> yeah, it's a busy time. Uh, uh, I don't know. I can't believe it's been over a month. That's crazy. Yeah. We need to find some more really awesome guests to bring on. Yeah. If you want to join us, please let us know. Yeah. We'd love Just, to talk to you. Like, Send us a message on Twitter. Yeah, we'll what's it Twitter? <laughs> it still exists. It, it does? does. Oh, it does. I haven't been on that for a while now. <laughs> but cool. I'm really excited about today's guest. Yeah, what's going on today? So today we have Joseph Favre on, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Epidemiology and the College of Public Health here. And his big interest is genomic epidemiology. And I heard him speak on one of our uh, community ID calls, and it was great. I loved it. So I had to reach out. So welcome to the show. Yeah, that sounds like a lot there that he's going to have to tell us what all of that actually means. So yeah, welcome, Joe. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all for bringing me on. I'm I'm excited to chat. answer any questions y'all have. Why don't we start with um, what is genomic epidemiology? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, ge- that is, it's an interesting first question because it's kind of a semantic debate and some people might have different opinions on what that word means. Um, <clears throat> but the you know, genomic epidemiology is, as and kind of pathogen genomics as we currently understand it and use it, at least in the infectious disease space. Um, would be applying modern genomic techniques, next generation sequencing, whole genome sequencing, um, in, in combination with uh, sort of basis in evolutionary biology like phylogenetics, population genomics, uh, applying those, coupling it with epidemiological data to try to understand uh, more, more you know, kind of in-depth aspects of infectious disease epidemiology. Uh, so how can how can we use genomics and, and again in my case so very specifically you know about infectious diseases not like human genomics um, but very very specifically you know the, the genomics of the pathogens we're interested in how can we take that data couple it with routine epidemiological data that we get uh, and and try to learn something about uh, infectious disease epi. Yeah, that sounds pretty uh, complex there. <laughs> um... When uh, so just something recent, so you're talking about genomics and 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 whatnot. So with COVID, and I assume that was uh, some of what you've been doing here lately, is terms of uh, looking at the different variants, and then to trying to figure out, uh, I assume uh, some kind of different behavior with the different variants and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think that's probably the the best current example, and you know the most pressing one, and and kind of the easiest one to point to at the moment. Um, so when I give lectures uh, about this, I always show the the epi curve, right? So you can get this from like the New York Times or wherever, and it's just x-axis is date, y-axis is number of cases. We do that for the U.S. Um, there's a lot of bumps, but there's some very very large bumps in, in cases. And um, the, the the example I always give here is 
if we didn't actually have uh, uh, genomic epi kind of running in the background and, and under you know, actively sequencing all of these cases of SARS-CoV-2, um, that epi curve wouldn't make any sense because we know the vaccines are pretty efficacious, uh, especially very early on. Um, so why we were seeing some of the biggest bumps in cases that we'd seen at points in time when our, our population was most vaccinated uh, would, would pose a lot of questions. Uh, but we do know because of uh, you know, pathogen genomics and genomic epidemiology that the virus is evolving. It's evolving in very important and specific ways. Uh, and we learn all of that, you know, how, you know, how those, those changes in the virus genome actually affect certain things like antibody neutralization or cell receptor binding. You know, you have to do, you know, experiments to work that out. But to know that those changes even exist, you have to do genomic epidemiology. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. So quickly after um, SARS-CoV-2 was described before it even had a name or anything like that, you, there was a uh, genetic sequencing of the virus. And so that was pretty widely disseminated. So if you go back to the wild type virus, the initial virus and then go through the changes that we've had, you know, up until now with the different variants and watching the epi curves and stuff. How much evolutionary change are you looking at that leads to these spikes and with these variants? Is it is it a lot of change? Is it just a few amino acids, or or what's the yeah, and, and other you know other new variance factors that are coming on, or is it just changes in attachments that they have pre-existing already? Yeah, so a few things there. Uh, you know, you talk about the that first virus genome sequence being widely disseminated. It's worth pointing out that how SARS-CoV-2 was discovered was through pathogen genomics and next generation sequencing. So typically, you know, if a new virus emerges in a population, you isolate it on cell culture, you describe it using all these different, you know, virological techniques. The way that we knew what this was, and I say we collectively, as in like the scientific community, um, was solely through genomics and next generation sequencing data they you know so also kind of a part a lecture i often give is show that the timeline of when promed and the world health organization bulletin came out and said uh you know there's clusters of these undiagnosed pneumonia cases in, in hubei province china and you know they're undiagnosed because they're failing the routine diagnostics uh, you know i'm not a not a clinician uh, i would imagine they'd be running things like biofires routine rtqpcr assays whatever uh, and all those kept failing so they took you know, some tissue sample, whether uh, likely like sputum or aspirin or something, uh, and just did really, really deep next generation sequencing and used modern approaches in bioinformatics and computational biology to de novo assemble uh, a viral genome. And we could tell using phylogenetic based approaches to say how closely related is this virus to other viruses. You could say it was a, not only was it a coronavirus, is it a Sarbeco coronavirus, is it a beta coronavirus? Um, you know, somewhat similar to SARS, but still very genetically distinct enough to say this is a new thing. So genomics really has been playing a role since day one. Um, and then importantly, when we had that genome, again, we collectively, uh, that's, that's the, that, you know, the, the, the sequence to that spike protein, the, the RNA sequence is, is what went into the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine that allowed us to kick off vaccine development almost immediately. It allowed for the development of other diagnostics, RTQPCR based diagnostics. Um, and, and the rapid diagnostic test, right? You need to, to you know, be able to isolate that protein and express that protein. And the easiest way to do that now is to, you know, uh, you know express it in the cell culture systems that you need the, the nucleic acid sequence for. Um, and then it also allowed us to develop techniques to sequence a lot of other SARS-CoV-2 genomes. Uh, and, you know, kind of, sorry, that was kind of a long-winded way to get back to your question. Uh, we have sequenced a bunch of SARS-CoV-2 genomes. I think something 
Well, actually, I can pull it up right now. Um, how many SARS-CoV-2 genomes have, have been generated and made publicly available? Um, it's it's on the order of uh, over 10 million at this point. Um, <laughs> wow. So it's, it's, it's a really remarkable number. Um, I, I've told people I haven't actually done this formal analysis because I'm not sure the best way you could do it, but there's likely... Mm, I'm confident in saying this, there's more SARS-CoV-2 genomes that exist than all other pathogen genomes combined. And it's probably not even that close. So 14,588,846 SARS-CoV-2 genomes are currently publicly available. Wow. Um, so if you want to track fine scale evolution over time, sequence a lot of it. But that's also, it's a testament to people doing this work and generating that data and importantly, making it publicly available. People at UMC have been doing that for years now. Um, the, the public health lab has, uh, Mike Wiley's lab uh, in the College of Public Health has been sequencing genomes. Folks at Creighton have. There's there's really great collaborative efforts to do that. Um, but that's also a testament to how many cases there's been. You know, the, every every one of these genomes comes from an individual uh, COVID-19 case. So you can actually then, as you suggested, that you can track the evolution of that virus over time. Um, so how does viral evolution play into the pandemic? That's it's a great question and something that I think you know, folks like me that were working in this space prior to SARS-CoV-2, we're, we're trying to answer just with different systems. And then when a pandemic like this comes along, where SARS-CoV-2 has really changed the trajectory of the, the, the evolution of the virus has changed the trajectory of the pandemic, it's it's becoming all too relevant. Um, so how many mutations uh, has, it, has it garnered? So the SARS-CoV-2 virus genome is about 30,000 uh, nucleotides long. It's, it's So uh, coronaviruses are, are uh, actually... Um, the longest RNA viruses there are. So it's, it's a big genome in, the ter in terms of viruses compared to like you and me, it's time. Um, but since that, that original virus was sequenced, uh, the most divergent viruses now um, that are currently circulating some variants of Omicron there uh, have, have gotten at least over 100 nucleotide mutations, which it sounds like a lot. Uh, and so you can actually calculate uh, a mutation rate or substitution rate of the virus that boils down to about one mutation every two-ish weeks. Um, so again, I mean, you're thinking about how, how fast something's evolving, it all depends on context. Uh, for RNA viruses, that's relatively slow, actually. Um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 does not evolve terribly quickly. Um, no coronaviruses evolve terribly quickly compared to other RNA virus counterparts, and that's because uh, coronaviruses and their very large genome encode for um, RNA proofreading polymerases. So they don't have the, they're not as error prone as things like Ebola virus or influenza or West Nile virus, for example. Um, but on the scale of like human evolution, that would be an incredibly fast, you know, uh, uh, thing to do. But then also other, you know, DNA viruses don't evolve this quickly. Bacteria doesn't evolve this quickly. So, um, and then the, you know, so I always, I always tell folks, you know, this mutation rate is expected. Vi viruses mutate, they evolve. That is, that is what they do. Um, it's where the, you know, the, the mutations occur in a, in a clock-like fashion. They will always be occurring somewhere in the genome. Now, where they occur, you can actually kind of predict that now, depending on whatever selective pressure you're putting out there. Um, but but as, as you got at earlier, some of the mutations are much more consequential than others. Uh, and specifically, a lot of the mutations in the spike protein, uh, that's important because, as I mentioned earlier, that's the protein that we are vaccinated. That's the that's what our what our you know antibodies see. Um, it's it's the immunogenic proteins. It's what the the uh, mRNA vaccines are made to. Um, also, the recombinant protein vaccines are are also made to the spike protein. 
Um, so if it changes enough from the, the vaccine, you know, what we originally vaccinated against, the antibodies aren't going to bind as well. You get reduced neutralization, which is clearly what we've seen with Omicron. It's also important for binding to ACE2 cell receptors. Um, if the, the spike protein conformation changes, uh, sometimes it can bind better to ACE2, sometimes it can bind worse. That can infect, uh, that, that can affect uh, transmissibility of the virus, that could potentially affect virulence. Um, but there's, there's a lot of groups doing really fine scale studies on like, well, how does this mutation change, you know, these exact parameters. So, uh, sorry, uh, this is a little bit of a long-winded answer, but there's, there's the, the evolution of the virus genome. To me, obviously, I'm coming at it from this context, but really is kind of the name of the game at this point. That's, that's really what is, you know, making the trajectory of this pandemic look peculiar. How do you feel about the variant naming system? <laughs> it's hard. They're taking a phylogenetic-based approach uh, to it. Uh, everything that is Omicron shares a, a most recent common ancestor. It, it is a logical way to name things. Um, the well, importantly, with the naming uh, that we got right early on uh, is that we need to stop naming things based off geographical locations, which is very important. You know, the quote-unquote UK variant or the South Africa variant, like that's stigmatizing. We should do away with that, and we did. Uh, and that's 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 the right thing to do. Greek alphabet, great. Um, it's it, you can't you can't name every variant. It, could, it depends on you know every every virus that's generated is, is going to be slightly different in some way. Um, so you know they they try to make sublineages. Uh, I prefer the pango nomenclature. So when we talk about Omicron or Delta or Alpha or whatever, but really what's what's nice is looking at you know this kind of hierarchical system. So uh, you know, uh, B.1.1 or B.1.1.7 was alpha, but all the dots means that basically there's subclades within the larger clade that are moving forward. And then some of them get Greek alphabet names. Um, so it's, it's hard to do. It's not, like I said, thankless work. There's people that scour these phylogenetic trees all the time and are diligently updating all this information. Yeah. Yeah. So, Looking back, you you know, knowing what you knew before the pandemic and then knowing what you know now, which I'm sure you've learned a lot about uh, uh, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, but I think the messaging early on, we didn't really, I, I don't think, did a great job of explaining that there were going to be variants that were probably clinically significant. And when the vaccines were coming out, it seemed like the messaging was that this was going to be the end of the pandemic because there were vaccines available. But I think people like you who are ev evolutionary virologists, et cetera, knew that this was going to change and that there was a chance that they might not work in the future. So, I mean, for future pandemics, um, you know, we should use somebody like yourself and the knowledge that you have and maybe point out the fact that, hey, there are limitations to things. Things are going to change and we're going to have to keep an eye on this and adjust our responses. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all, I'm trying to think back to the beginning of the pandemic. And frankly, it's hard to think about for a variety of reasons, in part because we were working on this uh, you know, trying to, to to maintain social distancing so only a few people could be in the lab at a time. I was like relegated to a broom closet to sequence stuff. At, like, <laughs> but my 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 daughter, my first child, was born in December of 2019, so we weren't sleeping anyway. So it was just it was like a, that whole year just like doesn't exist in my memory. <laughs> right. Very sleep deprived. Um, but yeah, you know, I think at the beginning there was a lot of people kind of in the space that I'm in were saying like, you know 
there, you would do these, you know, you'd sequence these genomes, you'd do these phylogenetic analysis and see that the the, the virus was getting mutations. And um, I think we were, we were kind of trying to, to, to dampen down the, the, you know, how, how much emphasis was put on that at least immediately because knowing like what I said earlier, viruses evolve. It's what, it's what they do. We should expect the virus to change. Um, and we also, I think, understood that the virus could change in some meaningful ways. Now, the variants of concern that have come out, you know, starting with the alpha variant um, and then something like Delta to come through and then to see something like Omicron after that, um, as someone that understands that viruses change over time, uh, I was still floored by that. Like, I, I don't think anyone really saw something like Omicron coming, something that, that could gain as many mutations as it did be as transmissible as it is and just evade previous induced immunity um, to that scale and to to come to dominance that quickly. That that if anyone saw that, I mean, I, I would I would love for someone to say, oh, yeah, I predicted that. No one did. Um, but that that was still really surprising. But yeah, as far as communication goes, absolutely could have done a better job communicating that this virus is going to change and evolve over time. Or, you know, Tony Fauci, I thought, put this in a really succinct way that, you know, if you stop transmission, you don't give the virus a chance to, to evolve. You know, it can only, if if I get, if I get infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus is replicating in me, some of the, the mutations in that genome are going to show up because it's an RNA virus. Uh, but if I don't transmit it to anyone, that's fine. It's a, I'm a dead end host at that point. It doesn't doesn't move forward in the population. Um, so th that I think was good messaging. Um, but you know that's not my. There, there's a, there's a lot of folks who think about health communication and health promotion and stuff like that. And that's how to talk about this. I think is outside my wheelhouse. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it, it has changed a lot. And then think about like how it's changed vaccine efficacy. Really. I would imagine that's a hard thing to try to predict. I think, again, not being an immunologist, even really a respiratory virus person, my background's in medical entomology and parasitology is so mosquitoes and ticks and viruses and worms and stuff. Um, what I feel like I'm learning through all this is that uh, it's really hard to vaccinate against respiratory virus, it appears to be. We don't have, we don't vaccinate against flu very well. We don't vaccinate, the, 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 the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine it, is very important, especially in keeping people out of the hospital. That's how we should always talk about this. Um, but as far as preventing infections, they don't they don't really seem to work that well for that long. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, well, let's step back a little bit from COVID and just figure out how did you get to where you are. Where 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 did this all start? Where uh, you know where did you have the seed planted that this is what you want to do, and and where did you get the training that you have? Um. Yeah, uh, it started specifically in, in the fall of 2010 at Peru State College in Peru, Nebraska. That's that's where I started to become a scientist. Um, so I'm actually from Nebraska. I'm a Nebraskan uh, from Springfield, so not far down the road. My family is still here. That was one of our draws to come back. Uh, I did my undergraduate at Peru State College, um, so state school, about an hour south of Omaha. Um, and I actually went there to play football. I really wasn't that interested in school. Um, and I had a bunch of knee surgeries and decided I should probably do something else. And, uh, one of the professors there by the name of Rich Clopton, I was in his biology courses and he said, Hey, come do some research in the lab. Uh, and reluctantly, uh, I said, yes. And I started studying cockroaches and their parasites. Um, he had, so if you, if you ever need, you know, cockroaches or something, there's like 
colonies, dozens of colonies in the, the Hoyt Science Building at Free State College. Um, and he really kind of showed me what it's like to be a scientist. I, I think a lot of folks, when they start their undergraduate degree, uh, if they're interested in science or health, they assume like, you know, I'm going to be an MD or a nurse or something. I didn't realize that being like a research scientist was an option. And <clears throat> after after uh, spending three years as an undergraduate researcher, going to conferences, writing papers, presenting work, doing field work, which was the best, just going out into the woods and collecting cockroaches all over the U.S., loved it. Um, I knew I wanted to be a research scientist, uh, but I did want to have more of a bent towards um, uh, human health. Um, so I, I really did like the, the the insect work and the parasite work, and I thought, well, uh, mosquitoes are insects that are important for human health, so I should should do that. Um, so I pursued my PhD at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Uh, so if you know if you're in the vector-borne disease space, I would say Fort Collins is the uh, the, the highest per capita rate of medical entomologists in the world uh, because the CDC vector-borne disease branch is also there. So uh, I was in Dr. Greg Ebel's lab uh, in the arthropod-borne infectious disease labs out there. Greg Ebel is uh, an evolutionary biologist, um, tick mosquito guy, um, and he let me come work in his lab for four years and, and get my PhD working on West Nile virus, working on a few different ways to do infectious disease surveillance using mosquitoes. Uh, that gave me a chance to um, spend some time in West Africa, some time in Mexico during the Zika virus outbreak. It was incredible. Um, so I started doing a lot of international field work there. And uh, that's really where I, I started thinking about these ideas of how, how can we use next generation sequencing and genomics in the context of, of uh, uh, infectious disease biology. Um, not so much an epi at that point. Uh, really pretty, um, you know, I, I I petted stuff a lot and coded. Um, uh, but then I did my first postdoc at WashU in St. Louis working on the global program to eliminate lymphatic filariasis. Uh, so LF, uh, mosquito transmitted nematode, causes uh, what, what we colloquially call as elephantiasis. Um, but I think that can be a bit demeaning. Um, you know, lymphedema, the legs, uh, general area, stuff like that. So it's, it's a neglected tropical disease. Uh, it's a parasite, but it's transmitted by mosquitoes, which is interesting. It's really the only parasite transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, uh, but it's targeted by the World Health Organization for eradication, which is it's a whole other thing. Um, but so while I was at WashU, I got to continue to do a lot of international field work in places like Haiti and Indonesia. Um, and I also, when I was in the lab, was working on ways to sequence the complete genome of these worms uh, quickly and uh, inexpensively so we could kind of incorporate genomics into these mass drug uh, mass drug administration programs. I uh, did that for two years, really liked it, um, but decided I wanted to, to move on uh, to do some more uh, arbovirus work. So I, I did my second postdoc at the Yale School of Public Health um, uh, in Dr. Nate Grubaugh's lab. Uh, I'd actually known Nate from our time at Colorado State. And I was working on uh, a dengue virus project. I was really excited about sequencing dengue virus genomes. That genomic epi at that point, as far as like full infectious diseases, had kind of taken off. Uh, it, it was relevant during the Ebola virus outbreaks in West Africa. It was relevant during the Zika virus pandemics in the Americas. Um, and we were really excited to apply it to some other systems. And then COVID hit. And that's all I did for about two and a half years. Um, and now, now running my own lab here at UNMC. Uh, we still do COVID work, uh, oddly enough. 
well, partner with the state a lot, have, have worked with a lot of folks at DHHS on their COVID sequencing and analyses. Uh, and they got that up and running, so they don't need me anymore. Um, the our really only routine COVID work now is with the NBA, oddly enough. Um, we've been partnering with the NBA for like two and a half years on COVID stuff. Hmm. Um, but besides that, the lab is doing a lot of parasite genomics uh, as well. So we work on hookworms, we work on filarial worms, uh, whipworms, again, trying to develop ways to start applying some of these same techniques, not to just virus infections, but um, parasite infections, but specifically in the light of these control programs. So again, sorry, roundabout answer of, of how I've wound back up at UNMC. Yeah, no, that's terrific. That's that's awesome. Um, uh, we'll have to talk offline a little bit about WashU because that's where I trained actually. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I was in yeah. internal med there uh, working with Gary Weil and Peter Fisher. I was going to say, you probably worked with Gary Weil. He was one of my Thank favorite you. attendings when I was a fellow back in the day. I, I bet. Gary's a character. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, I saw him for the first time in about four years at ASTMH this year. Uh, still still there, kind of pushing that entire field forward almost, you know, single-handedly. It's incredible. That's very cool. Um, it sounds like you had great mentors along the way. Mm -hmm. And it's always really awesome when you find your passion. Um, what advice do you have for maybe some students who don't really know what they want to do yet, but are trying to get into the medical or science field? Yeah, good question. And yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like uh, I, I am where I am because I had good mentors, but very importantly, good mentors at specific times in my life that when I needed them. Um, as a student at Peru State, surely did not have, I think I was a physical therapy undergrad minor or something uh, that's what I was gonna I was gonna go to physical therapy school which is nothing nothing wrong with going to physical therapy school um but I had someone come in and just like show me that there's all this other stuff you can do um and again importantly for me was realizing you know what I was learning in the classroom so Peru State's really a, such a unique place and it's, it's a really special spot I think to be a scientist because it's very small but the science faculty is very dedicated. Uh, and actually like half of them when I was there were, were like bona fide publishing parasitologists, which surely shaped my trajectory in that way. Um, but it, it was important for me to, to realize that I really liked the stuff I was learning in class and like our zoology courses and our botany courses and ecology and parasitology. Um, <clears throat> and then started thinking about what my career would be. I was like, well, I wouldn't be using any of this if I, if I went to physical therapy school, but this is what I really like. And just having someone show me that like, you know, you can actually just be a scientist like that as a job, that, that, that is something you can do. You don't have to like science, but immediately have to get into like a clinical, clinically oriented field. Again, not, not saying anything, anything is wrong with doing that. I'm thrilled. We have lots of folks that do. Um, but yeah, having, you know, what would I say to folks that are kind of in that spot right now themselves is is search out opportunities like I think that's that's a really big thing and I, I didn't do that I mean it fell in my lap like again good mentors just kind of like dragging me along the way sometimes <laughs> um but there, there's there's a lot of different opportunities in a lot of different spaces and um I was fortunate that you know kind of uh, being able to do this this sort of research as an undergraduate if you'd have asked me at you know when I was 19, like what am I passionate about vector-borne disease? I'm like, what do you mean? What is a vector-borne disease? I have no idea. Um, but 
kind of being exposed to getting that exposure and and getting the opportunity to like see what what this job could actually entail uh was was definitely the biggest influence um so yeah you're you're absolutely right mentorship is is key yeah so you talked a little bit about doing parasites and i assume just from what you talked about before that um genomic variation in parasites is probably a little less than it would be in viruses with with you know different amounts of genome and everything else. How much does the, that help in your epidemiologic work? You, you talked about filariasis, and I think you've talked about hookworm offline too. So what are you doing with those uh, types of infections and how does the genomic epidemiology help with those? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's kind of, you have to, to uh, your framework's a little bit different. Um, so, I mean, just the, the biggest difference, purely from a gen genomic epi standpoint, just starting with the disease biology itself, um, you're right, these are, you know, worms are, they're animals, right? They have, they're, they're more like you and me than they are like the viruses. Um, you know, they have, they have uh, chromosomes and, you know, really big, big genomes that are, are DNA-based um, and can uh, uh, acquire mutations as well. Um, so the biology is just different, but but actually we don't actually have a great feel for how diverse the populations of these these parasites are. There's just so little work being done on it. There's so little sequencing data that's been generated. Um, so yeah, the fact that they're DNA organisms, they don't replicate nearly as quickly as viruses do. You would think that you know there's just less genetic diversity, but importantly, the prevalences are much higher. Um, <clears throat> so not SARS-CoV-2 is not the example because the prevalence is incredibly high. Um, but for a lot of other viral infections um, or, or outbreaks, they're relatively limited. But, you know, hookworms infect a billion people around the world. 25% uh, of the world's population is infected with a soil transmitted helminth. So the population sizes are gigantic. We just don't have a good feel for how diverse that is. Um, <clears throat> but the practical differences are data generation, um, sequencing a 30,000 nucleotide virus that's about that big is, is a kind of a different proposition than sequencing a uh, like I said, an animal. So hook, the hookworm genome, for example, is 350 million base pairs long, not 350,000 base pairs long. So, you know, orders of magnitude larger genomes. Um, but the, I think the, the, the biggest difference in the questions that we can ask is how do these, uh, you know, these kind of global health programs, uh, you know, mass drug administrations, deworming campaigns, things like that, and a really large scale treatment of uh, populations with antihelminthic drugs, kind of indiscriminately, for the most part, you know, they just go into areas and treat everybody with ivermectin or albendazole or DEC or some combination thereof. What's the effect that that drug distribution is having on warm populations themselves? And we don't have a great feel for that. Uh, where we can look is in um, the veterinary literature. So our livestock are subjected to the exact same MDA routines with things like ivermectin. So homonchus contortus is a good example. Uh, the I forget the common name of it. Something to do with the, I think maybe the barber pole worm. Is that it? Uh, anyways, it's a it's a common worm of sheep and cow um, because these are livestock and those worms can cause problems. They've been you know treated at a at an industrial scale. And what we found out was that, yeah, you can reduce worm populations for so long until you drive drug resistance in all of those populations. So yeah, there's been epidemiological evidence that some of these MDA campaigns aren't working as well in humans. So people that used to have hookworms, you could treat them as a drug, they would get rid of all of them, and you know, the, the clear the drug would work fine. 
Uh, that's not happening as much anymore. It's it's very spotty and depends on what populations you're in. Uh, so the the logical hypothesis is that you're you're selecting for drug resistance in these populations, but we just don't have a good feel for what that looks like. Um, so in general, these are the questions we're interested in asking. How can we use genomics to understand, you know, the evolutionary uh, population biology, you know, the dynamics of these these worm populations in light of mass drug administration? You can also kind of use that as a metric to ask yourself: Is the the, the MDA working? Theoretically, if it works well and you treat everyone in the community, you're removing a bunch of worms from the population. So if you look at, you know, just kind of routine uh, population genetic analyses like heterozygosity um, rates, rates of inbreeding in populations, um, genetic diversity in general should go down if you are successfully treating the population. But if you're not, they're going to stay the same. The, the way to think about this, there's a, a, a term that was coined by... Um, uh, Stephen Doyle and James Cotton, when they're at uh, the Sanger Institute working on some of these, these problems, uh, called eradication genomics. It's basically the exact opposite of conservation genomics. So, you know, we're, we're always trying to, to, you know, keep endangered species around, uh, you know, make sure we don't kill off all the sea turtles and the cheetahs. And the, the whole idea of conservation genomics is to increase genetic diversity in these populations, increase individuals, let the populations grow. But these worms, we're trying to do the exact opposite. So you just take all these metrics that you have for conservation genomics, invert them and that, that's kind of the idea that's very interesting I've, my mind is like going a million miles a minute um, <laughs> <laughs> um what is your favorite and least favorite parts about your job right now oh. <laughs> you're gonna get me in trouble asking me those questions <laughs> I love the research. I really do. Um, I, that's uh, I, I consider myself a research scientist first and foremost. Um, so, kind of. So, you know, I'm a new professor. I started a little over a year ago. So it's an interesting time in in everyone's career when they kind of come come into a professorship route, especially one that's somewhat research intensive. You know, the majority of my time is spent doing research. I was kind of carving out, you know, like where. Where, you, where what are you going to contribute? You know, where can you find space that is unique, uh, but still answering important questions and, you know, importantly, answering questions that are fundable by places like the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundations, and you can get money to do the work you want to do. But I've really enjoyed this first year to kind of just like mapping out, um, you know, where, what do, what do I want, you know, the, the lab to, to look like? How, how can we apply the knowledge that we have and the tools that we're developing and uh you know these ideas and turn them into to projects on the ground so i did mention earlier that we have we have some international collaborations that's always been a really rewarding part of this work still this is a great perk to be able to travel the world to go to different places and do this this sort of stuff. i mean I, I i feel infinitely lucky like i get paid to to collect to collect bugs and play with worms and <laughs> you know, go around the world to do so like it, it is really an incredible job uh so that's my favorite my least favorite uh, i don't mind saying it i don't like administrative work i'm really bad at it um and the fair amount of my job right now is filling out forms and stuff and it's it's uh, i'm not i'm not cut out for that sort of work um so i think probably most professors would tell you if they're being honest that their least favorite part is is like paperwork i don't think you're alone in that <laughs> yeah 
No, I mean, my least favorite part of that was always writing the grants and trying to get the funding and everything else. But actually doing this stuff was fun mm -hmm. and, and having the ideas and brainstorming and everything else. But the rest of it's hard, I think, and tedious. And You know, I actually uh, don't mind writing the grants. I kind of enjoy it, actually, because it's like putting these ideas on papers. But I'm also in the spot where I have a lot of grants out and I haven't got a lot of them rejected. But so give it a few months. And if you ask me, you know, in like May, how I'm liking it, I might say it's terrible because I can't do anything <laughs> <laughs> the cycle of life isn't it <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty rough um funding rates are not very high that would be great if we could change that but so where do you think your work takes us going forward like um you know in terms of you know you talked about you know using molecular tests genomics and everything else. I mean, which is obviously a, a 21st generation, 21st century kind of thing, you know, because in the past it was all, like you said, cultures and, you know, antibody tests and everything else. And so we were evolving and we're losing a lot more molecular diagnostics for everything, um, you know, and, and hopefully we'll have molecular testing for figure out what's the best medicine for people. What's a, what medicine are they maybe going to have an allergic reaction to or not work in this person because they're a hypermetabolizer or things like that. I mean, there's all kinds of ways and revolutions that we can have with this sort of uh, looking at the world. Yeah, you're coming kind of like precision medicine, right? Like, yeah, the gen genomics in general, I think, is is going to just start infiltrating all all sorts of parts of this, and it's it's just such a powerful tool. Um, it's 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 cool. Um, I, I feel like kind of like the tech side of this is one thing I've really enjoyed of kind of working with this technology as it's developing and moving forward. So, um, you know, for, just to give, to give you and your listeners an example, you know, the, the human genome projects started you know, in the nineties, it took a decade and a couple billion dollars to sequence the human genome. And it was a feat. I mean, that's like one of the most incredible scientific, you know, outputs that have happened. Um, you can sequence a human genome in a few hours for a thousand bucks now. I mean, it's just remarkable how, how much quicker that's happened. Uh, but in our laboratory, we, we use the sequence, this genomics platform called the Oxford Nanopore Minion. Um, and you know, not to bore you with the details of how that differs than uh, compared to other sequencing platforms or the Sanger sequencing that was happen happening a while ago. But basically it's it, it fits in the palm of my hand. It plugs into a, a gaming laptop that we bought. Actually, so it's interesting, like online gaming has really pushed the field of genomics forward because the cost of uh, GPUs and laptops has plummeted because of it. Um, so you can buy, like we, we bought a, uh, a relatively powerful laptop for like $1,500 that runs a sequencing device that plugs right into it. It fits in the palm of our hand. We can take a worm, extract its DNA, or take a sample of SARS-CoV-2 in it, extract its DNA, do just a few reactions, and within hours, put that onto the sequencer and start generating data in real time. So again, something that, that I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, the stuff of like science fiction, honestly, at this point, um, and now it's becoming routine. And so when you discuss genomics becoming a part, you know, an integrated part of medicine is a huge, huge thing uh, that will only continue to improve. I'm really interested in seeing how we can use genomics more in public health. SARS-CoV-2 is a really great example of this, of, from, an, from an infectious disease biology standpoint, of how, how we can use this to you know, start making decisions, right? So the, the the booster that's out right now, the bivalent booster, was designed to newer iterations of SARS-CoV-2 that we figured out through sequencing, right? Um, but where we're, I'm personally really interested in where I'm really excited for our lab to go 
is is making making you know these sorts of sequencing approaches and, and importantly the analyses associated with them to have that be part of the decision making process for these like larger global health campaigns. You know, currently we are dosing hundreds of millions of people every year with these antiparasitic drugs to to clear these worms and these, these parasites that are you know really consequential for development and cause really high rates of morbidity. Um, but we're not really asking ourselves what's what's that doing to the parasite population. So I feel like we're kind of at this inflection point where we can start answering those questions. You know, not at the scale of the problem. Like I said, a quarter of the world's population has intestinal parasites, um, but we can start getting there. And you know, would love to see 10, 15, 20 years from now. That's just a kind of a routine part of public health. Yeah. Are you doing that um, with some rapid serologic tests that you guys have developed? I I I think. Dr. Weil had worked on that back in the 80s and 90s. Is, is that how you're yeah, diagnosing? Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So Gary developed the the uh, uh, the the Brugia sort of uh, flareal test strip assay. Um, so yeah, that, that's a part of what they call these task surveys, transmission assessment surveys. So if you go in, you, do you treat treat individuals with these drugs. There's a variety of different markers. One of them being you know antigen positive, yes or no. Antibody positive, yes or no. Um, and interesting with flare worms, you can look at mosquito populations because it's transmitted by mosquitoes. So similar to what we do with West Nile virus every year, right? We catch mosquitoes and test them for West Nile virus. If there's more mosquitoes and more of those mosquitoes have West Nile virus, the risk to humans is higher. Similar for filariasis, more mosquitoes with more of these parasites, the risk to humans is higher. You'd like to see that go down. Uh, so yeah, so that that's that's like a really great example of the kind of the routine uh, assessment surveys that go on. I want genomics to be another part of that. That's that's you know pie in the sky. You <laughs> bring these these sequencing devices with you. You do these treatments. You do these transmission assessment surveys and looking at parasite populations. Just another routine thing that you do. Can you pick up the parasitic DNA just in blood circulating? Uh, you know, just like mm -hmm. just draw draw blood draw, use your sequencer and find uh, parasitic DNA. If they're infected, definitely. Yep. Uh, you know, so like the microflare, if there's microflare in the blood, that's that's a relatively straightforward thing to do. You could potentially, if they're not, if they don't have microflare circulating, still kind of get like what they do, what they do in cancer, right? It's called like cell-free DNA. Right, uh, right. Yeah, like I a carious assay or something. I bet there's something, something you could do similar to that. We should test it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would be amazing. Well, we are rapidly approaching the end of the hour. Do you have any questions for us? Questions for you all. Yeah, what's the favorite part of your job? Oh, my the favorite part of my job is um, I'm an infection preventionist and we're contracted with the state to support healthcare facilities. So my favorite part of my job is just going out and educating on infection control and getting into those facilities that need help and answering their questions and making it a safer healthcare facility. Wow. What what an important thing over the last three years. I'm sure it's that's been, been busy. Really hard. Um, I can't even imagine, you know, we think about COVID kind of transmission broadly. I can't imagine working in like clinics trying to stop, you know, patient to patient transmission and stuff. It sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. That um it's fun. I mean, the the education part of it's fun, reaching out to people, helping people. I wear many hats um here at UNMC, but at, at the end of the day, 
think the reason that I went into medicine and the the reason I liked ID was, uh, you know, still that, you know, the patient uh, uh, provider interaction and, uh, you know, figuring out what's going on with people solving, trying to solve complex problems. And actually, one of the things I like about infectious disease, which is where you're trying to get with your filariasis research, is that you can actually make people better. Um, you know, we're not hopefully not palliating chronic diseases. We're actually treating people and curing them, um, which I think is uh, uh, still a great thing. I mean, antibiotics, antiparasitics, antivirals, or whatever, they're, they're miraculous drugs, what they can do as long as we use them appropriately and keep them around. And so that's a big part of, of what we do. But I still like the fact that I can see somebody who's super sick in the hospital, give them an appropriate therapy, see them back in clinic, and they're better i mean it's 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 amazing that, yeah that's incredible how has your all's job shifted since the pandemic slowed down a little bit um yeah that's mine has changed tremendously i'm, I'm also medical director for employee health at nebraska <laughs> medicine so um and i'm one of the uh, medical directors for the infection oh. prevention <laughs> grant that sarah works on so um Pre this, that jobs were, you know, relatively, I wouldn't say straightforward, but they were, you know, you kind of knew what you were going to expect. <laughs> then, you know, we started having the meetings in December of 2019 that something's going on and it's going to get here. And so how do we prepare for this? And the whole world turned upside down, as you all know. Um, it's gone in fits and spurts a little bit, as you talked about with the different variants. Uh, uh, there's been times when it's been horrible. The Omicron time was horrible. Um, we seem to have settled down a little bit into more of a routine uh, now. And so shifting back to regular things that I do, the other thing that I like to focus on is non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. So clinical treatment of, of those. And so working on getting that back going again and trying to get some back to a little bit more of normalcy still with COVID meetings and COVID uh, tracings and everything else thrown in there is kind of where we're trying to get back over the last few months. I think, uh, you know, what, whatever new normal is, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's really a tough question for me. So my background is in dentistry and I think getting back into the more preventative infection control, like going, doing a full facility review and not just focusing on are you wearing your respirators? Are you encouraging social distancing? Like those sorts of things. Everyone's sick of COVID now talking about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you are. Um, Both personally and professionally. Yes, yes. But I think just getting back into general infection prevention has been really satisfying. Yeah, it's definitely an area that suffered a lot during the pandemic. I mean, if you look at lots of uh, other infection rates, um, you know, they went up. Uh, uh, some of the issues, maybe there was just a, something published about uh, needle stick exposures in uh, in healthcare workers had gone up. Uh, you know, just because you're you're doing things in all this different PPE that maybe you're not used to, and 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 you know, your focus is on other things, and so it's. Uh, we got to get back to some of those and, and figuring out how to, to get those back down and live in a world where COVID is, is uh, still here and still real and, you know, wait for you guys to tell us when influenza changes or some other virus decides to evolve and cause the next problem. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's hope to dampen down the pandemic for the next few years. <laughs> 
Right. It'd be nice. It'd be nice. <laughs> At least, you know, a year ago, we were hardcore into the Omicron wave. This year, we're doing better. Progress, right? Totally, totally agree. We are, we are in a much better spot now. Yes. Although, you know, there are new variants out there, as you hear in these state calls, you know, some of these recombinants, you know, get to see what that's actually going to look like. But uh, I do like to think that we're in a much better spot right now than we were a year ago. Definitely. Yeah, this week, a year ago, th this month, a year ago, so January of uh, 22, I think we had, we must have had a quarter of our colleagues at, at Nebraska Medicine develop COVID infection in that four week time. That's insane, isn't it? It's incredibly, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's hard to even like fathom right now, but that's that's where we were not that long ago. So moving in the right direction anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Now you're gonna have to come back and tell us what you figure out with your worms. So if you yeah. get over there and, and figure out some stuff, <laughs> we're gonna have to to learn about uh, where things take you uh, as you get these things launched. Would would much rather be talking about worms than COVID. <laughs> we'll do an, a whole episode on worms. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. For all of our listeners out there, thanks for joining us for another episode of Dirty Drinks, and we will catch you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.